Pastor Mike Sherritt. Been with you about 11 months now. I particularly want to welcome on behalf of our worshiping family, any of you who are visiting with us today or joining us on the live stream. Thank you. We are so grateful that you've joined us to look to our gracious and merciful God. We started a few weeks ago a series called Begging Jesus. We're looking at particular vignettes in the Bible of, of individuals who find themselves crying out, pleading, begging Jesus for something. This morning's text is Luke 18, 9 to 14. There's an uh, outline provided for you in the bulletin as well as the text. The Word of God, beloved. He, Jesus, also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Two men went up into the temple to pray. Parenthetically, this would have been the daily prayers at 9 a.m. and 3 p.m. One a Pharisee, the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I'm not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes at all that I get. But the tax collector, standing far off, was not even, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, the sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself Will be exalted. Have you ever experienced Jesus' bewilderment? That's a term I would give to what happens when you're reading the Bible, you're specifically reading the Gospels about Jesus, you're seeing Jesus heal people, feed the hungry, deliver the oppressed, confront the oppressors, and with unbridled compassion show the love and wisdom and goodness of God. And then you read, some people want to kill him. It's like, wait, what? What is that? I'm bewildered. It sure looks like when you read about Jesus, he embodies true humanity and true deity. And in fact, he did. And it means this. The Lord Jesus Christ, by virtue of his presence and his teaching, when he went into situations, he created distinctions. People were parsed. Where Jesus was, in his person, by his teaching, there were distinctions made between the proud and the humble between the self-righteous and the broken. How do you know which one of those is you? Here's a parable that helps you answer that question. Sidebar, parable, it means comparison, is a story about an everyday life thing that illustrates for us the nature 
of the invisible kingdom of God. That's what a parable is. And notice how Jesus invites you into this story. Verse 9. He told this parable to certain ones who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. When you read that, what question should you immediately ask of yourself? Could that be me? Am I the proud or the humble? Am I the self-righteous or the broken? See, it is not a good thing to be what Jesus just identified in his audience. It's not a good thing. And here's the reality. Jesus said the one man went down to his home justified, meaning he was at peace with God, reconciled to God. God accepted no more from him. He was absolutely pure and righteous in the sight of God. The other did not. Beloved, do you see? If they left the prayer meeting and both on the steps out of the temple fell down with of a heart attack and died, the one man would spend eternity apart from God, the other instantly in the presence of God in paradise forever. The stakes are really, really, really high. So let's ask these questions. So you know when Jesus makes distinctions in his word, are you the proud or the humble, the self-righteous or the broken? First question, what do we know about these men? And I don't mean personal details because we don't have any, but as we look at these two through a biblical lens, what can we assume about them is true and about you? Uh, they're both made in the image of God. We know that about them. You should know that about yourself. And as such, that means God built you for intimacy for himself. That's got to be the greatest human joy. You are built for intimacy with God. You're also built to love other people. You're built for relationship. God created you in his image to reflect back to him the glory of his righteousness. That's one of, part of what it means to be made in the image of God. You were designed to reflect God's, the glory of his holiness back to him. And they're made by God with a conscience. That means there's a mechanism within them that tells them right and wrong. So sometimes their conscience is accusing them. That wasn't good. It might be excusing them. You did okay there. Or there may be something in their life where they're silencing their conscience, which is screaming at them about something amiss in their life. So they're made in the image of God. They're also blessed because they're at a prayer meeting. And to know you need to pray is a blessing. They're welcome to God's house. They're both there. Everyone is welcome to God's house. That's, they're blessed. And no doubt, like you and me, they have questions about life. Why do I suffer? Why do I mess up? How do I treat bad people? Will I fulfill my hopes, dreams, desires, and aspirations? What does God think of me? How can I know for sure I'm going to heaven when I die? They have questions like you have questions. The last thing to point out we know about them is that they are, as are you and me, hardwired by indwelling sin to never get it right spiritually. They're hardwired by sin. One of the most important verses in the Bible, Proverbs 14, 12. Listen to this. There is a way that seems right to a man, but in the end it's the way of death. 
That means we're born with this massive capacity in our hearts to deceive ourselves about our own true spiritual condition. It's true of them. It's true of us. But notice, something has happened to one of the participants in this story. The tax collector. Look at verse 13. The tax collector, standing some distance away, was even unwilling to lift up his eyes to heaven. Now, you may not know this, but in this culture, the tax collectors were the bad guys. They were despised by society. Their job was to collect taxes for the Roman government, but once they got what the government wanted, they could uh, surcharge any amount they wanted to pad their pocketbooks. So you see, this person has lots of money at your expense. You can hardly pay the bills. He eats at all the expensive restaurants. He takes luxurious vacations. And there are five Lamborghinis in his garage. At your expense. You hate him. Something's happened to this guy. He's in a state of brokenness at the prayer meeting. And we don't know what precipitated this. Maybe he finally crashed and burned on the rocks of greed and self-indulgence. Maybe he heard about a, a man that committed suicide because he had overtaxed him and the man couldn't provide for his family. We don't know. Something has happened. You can tell by his attitude and his posture. He has experienced something of the holiness of God and the depth of his own sin. He is, his, his head is hung in shame. He can't lift up his eyes to heaven. He's standing far off. He doesn't feel any sense of deserving to be at church. His way doesn't seem so right in his own eyes. And he's so guilty. He is beating his breast. This is a symbolic uh, token of self-malediction. Woe is me. I'm undone. I, I deserve to be punched out by a holy God. In contrast, did you notice the Pharisee? These are the folks in this man's culture who are stridently religious. They are meticulous in their law-keeping. He had little conflict with God. He's unabashed. He's proud, grateful for his religious success. Standing by himself signals the fact that he can't classify himself like those scum over there. And it's interesting that people who think they're doing really well in life tend to focus on what? Their own successes and others' failures. He, to use Jesus' analogy in Matthew 7, can come up to you and spot the specks in your eyes all the while looking past the logs in his own. Now look, he's done some good things. Look at verse 12. I fast twice a week and pay tithes of all that I get. How many of you fasted twice in the last week? <laughs> wow. Do you pay tithes of all that you get, even birthday presents and inheritance? And it is right and better that he had done these things than not done them. But what's the critical question? Why he did these things, why you go to church, why you're religious, actually determines where you will spend eternity. Why you did this. See, if he was not self-deceived, if he actually was walking in close intimacy with, with God, how would he pray? How would he pray? I'm guessing something like this. Lord, by your grace alone, you've saved me from myself. Thank you that you've kept my sin from ruining me. 
all the good I've accomplished rests on your initiative, grace, and power. But for your guiding and restraining hand, I would be among society's worst. To you alone be the glory for anything good I have in my life. Actually, Casey took this because he saw this document and put it into the prayer we prayed earlier in the service. Is that right, Casey? Where are you, Casey? Acknowledge it. I recognize those words. They came right out of my sermon. Well, that's fine. That's the first question. What do we know about these men? So for, there's Casey. Did you steal my prayer out of my sermon and put it in the bulletin? Yeah. Good. It's great. Holy theft. Next question. Do you see the point? Do you see the point? He, he, would, he would pray as one profoundly indebted to the grace of God. Next question. What are we, what are we trying to save you from? misidentifying yourself as humble versus proud, broken versus self-righteous. That's what this story is for. It's for you. Next question. What do these two men tell you about the true way of salvation? Now, actually, there are three people in the story. I've inserted one. Because in our culture, there are fundamentally, just to be simplistic, there are three ways of thinking about yourself. Here's the first. I would call it, actually, I'm stealing these three from Tim Keller, my mentor. Be your own person. And this is the postmodern progressive. Be your own person. Uh, my destiny is completely in my hands. His creed, be true to yourself. Her way of thinking, no one can tell me what happiness is for me. I define that. Only I can determine what makes a good life for me. Now, what's wrong with that? <laughs> life doesn't work that way. <laughs> if we all determined our own reality and did whatever we wanted, we would have anarchy. What would keep us from absolutely destroying each other if everyone went about finding happiness as they, defound, as they, as they defined it? We'd destroy each other. So, be a good person. Incidentally, this person is not at the prayer meeting. They don't go to church. That's okay. So, be your own person. Secondly, be a good person. Who's that in the story? It's the Pharisee who trusted in himself that he was righteous and treated others with contempt. You could be a religious, uh, excuse me, you could be a non-religious moralist, or you could be a religious, law-abiding person, in this case the Pharisee, and where is he resting his plea for acceptance before God? We all live in a way where we want, we want to be right with God if we're in our right minds, and we rest our plea for that on something. Where is he resting his plea? On his performance. I thank you, God. This isn't real thanksgiving. I've already, I've already told you how he would pray if he was truly grateful. He said, I'm thankful that I don't do that and that I do this. Do you know what he's really asking God for? Think about it. He's asking God for justice. I deserve to be treated by you according to my good, law-abiding performance. And notice what his performance is based upon, verse 11. God, I thank you that I'm not like other people, adulterers, extortionists, and the unjust, even like this tax collector. You know what his righteousness is? It's comparison righteousness. And whenever we, in our culture, feel bad about ourselves, who do we compare ourselves to to make us feel better about who we are? Well, at least I'm not as bad as 
Hitler, no, you're not. But you're nowhere near as holy as Jesus. It's comparison righteousness. This is really, really important. For this man and all religions, their religion is advice. Do this and God will accept you. The truth is Christianity. God accepts you because of Jesus. Now do this. Two totally different religions. One from hell, one from heaven. You need to see something that is extremely critical at this point, and that is his sense of performance. And I can relate. For a couple decades in my existence, I believe God related to me based on my performance. I believed I was going to heaven based on my B-plus performance. More on my testimony later. It's not that interesting at this point. Here's what you need to see. His sense of performance has what effect on his spiritual sight? It is blinding him. He doesn't see the depths of sin in his heart. Now, if he was a daily reader of Proverbs, those of you who know me well are laughing right now, he would read in Proverbs 20, who can say, I've cleansed my heart, I'm pure from my sins. He didn't read that that morning, not standing in, in chapel thanking God for how righteous he was. He didn't read Proverbs 30, there is a kind who is pure in his own eyes, but is not washed from his filth. He didn't read that that morning. Psalm 130. If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? He is not even close to being in tune with the depth of his own pride, unbelief, self-sufficiency, self-promotion, self-protection, self-indulgence. It also blinds him to what? The depths of the nature of what God demands in his commandments. There's a great irony in this story. The three things... He's thankful that he's not, that he also disdains in other people. I'm not like these adulterers, extortioners are unjust. He's guilty of the same things and he doesn't see it. His failure, your and my failure to love God perfectly is spiritual adultery. <laughs> he's an adulterer. So am I. To any degree, I have something in my heart I love more than God. His failure to give God the glory, even for the fact that he ties and he fasts and everything, he should be giving God the glory for that. His failure to do that is extortion. He's stealing from God the glory due God for his life. He's an extortioner, an adulterer, an extortioner. And how is he guilty of being unjust? Well, what's the second great commandment? You shall love your neighbor as yourself. If this man was really a righteous man, he would have come into the prayer meeting. He would, have, he would have seen the tax collector over here in brokenness. He'd have walked over. He'd have said, buddy, let me tell you how gracious God is to broken people. In fact, cheer up. You're worse than you know. But God loves you more than you know. He would have loved on this man. He's guilty of the second great commandment. He's unjust. He doesn't see it. I have found in my pastoral experience people who are trusting their performance to be right with God fall out in three categories. There are the despairing. They have a very tender conscience. They're aware of what God requires and desires. They know they're not making the grade, and so they are trying hard, but they're despairing. 
And then you have the anxious. They too are aware of God's standards, not in the same way. And they're trying hard to live the Christian life. But they're uncertain. Am I really giving God enough? So they're anxious. And underneath those anxiety, there's going to be fear, right? If you're not sure you've given God enough and you know you're going to face him on the judgment day, there's going to be fear deep in your soul. The despairing, the anxious, and the overly self-confident. That's the Pharisee. These people are absolutely certain they're living the life God's called them to. They tend to be what? Proud, critical, judgmental, and self-reliant. Ooh, I see all of that in my heart. The third person in the story, remember, be your own person. He's not at church. Be a good person. Here's the, really, ultimately, the only other way to think about yourself. Be humbled by grace. Who is that? It's the tax collector. He went down to his house justified rather than the other. It's so ironic. They both come to church with a certain mindset and leave in the exact opposite. The Pharisee comes to church certain he's right with God. And Jesus says he left. He wasn't right with God, whether or not he knew it. The tax collector comes certain he wasn't right with God. And this miraculous transformation takes place. Jesus said he went down to his house justified. Beloved, when this tax collector came to church, to the prayer meeting, what, do you, what did he have to offer God for his salvation? The same as you. All you can give God is sin. That's all you've got. All you've got. Sin. That's all he has to offer God for his salvation. Therefore, he is begging for what? Mercy. Look at verse 13. The tax collector begged, cried out, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. He's literally asking for, there's two words in Greek for mercy. One, eleison, you know the song, Kyrie eleison. That's sort of general mercy, protection, provision, all that type mercy. This is a technical religious word and referred to the mercy seat in the temple. He is saying, God, propitiate me. Propitiate me. The, the assurance of pardon we used earlier from 1 John, the next verse went into 1 John 2. We have, a, we have a, uh, we, Jesus Christ, an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, who made propitiation for our sin. Same idea, same word. Why does this man say, God, propitiate me? Where is he? He's on the Temple Mount. What can he see? The lambs, the sacrifices, the priests, the altar. He can smell the smoke. He can smell the blood. He's there at the place of sacrifice. Apparently, this man knows what the religious Pharisee seemingly has forgotten tragically. And that is, it was once a year the high priest went into the Holy of Holies in that temple and he made propitiation for the sins of the people by sprinkling blood on the mercy seat. Somehow this man sees that. The only way to be saved, beloved, is to cry out to God, propitiate me, which is essentially saying this, God, you must be treated with contempt for my sins. God put to death your righteous beloved son on the cross in my place for my sins. God shed the precious spotless blood of Jesus Christ for me, the unworthy. <laughs> to be a Christian, to be saved, you have to ask God to be horrifyingly treated on the cross for you. That's what he's saying. 
do you see, beloved, salvation is not a partnership. So many Christians think Jesus is his part, and then I do my part. I have to do this and that and be religious and go to church and give and tithe and fast and all that stuff. Christianity is not a partnership. Because there's no amount of righteousness you can add to the righteous life Jesus lived in your place. He got the A+, and he gives it to you as a gift. <laughs> Christianity isn't a partnership. It's an exchange. You give God your sin. Jesus says, I'll take it. I'll be crucified for you. I'll take the death, the penalty your sins deserve. In exchange, I will give you my righteousness. That's 2 Corinthians 5.21. God made him who knew no sin, Jesus, to become sin on our behalf at the cross that we might become the righteousness of God in Christ. Beloved, if you have it, you're justified. If he's died for you, you're clean forever. Nothing to prove, nothing to lose. This is why Paul writes in Philippians 3.9, I want to be found in him, Kelly did a wonderful job talking about union in Christ in the new members class as much as I heard. Our faith unites us to Jesus. In Jesus we're declared righteous. In Jesus we're cleansed. In Jesus we're adopted. In Jesus we're raised up and seated with God in the heavenlies. Paul says, I want to be found in Jesus. Not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law. That's never going to happen. What does he want? But that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God, depends on faith. You receive it. You trust it. You believe it. And you know what happens in the heart in which that faith takes place? It is transformed. It is filled with awe, gratitude, love, Humility, beloved, we don't want to be good so God will accept us. We are good because God accepts us. God doesn't make you good so that he'll, so you'll, he'll accept you. He accepts you in Christ in order to make you good. Last question, much shorter. Here we finish. What's the evidence you've received mercy? I have to ask the question, why? Because Jesus gives you a parable with an application. Look at verse 14. Here's the application. Not all, not all uh, parables have applications. This one does. Everyone who exalts himself will be humbled. The one who humbles himself will be exalted. Now, you need to supply some words. Jesus is saying, he who exalts himself in a bad way will be humbled in a terrifyingly horrible way. He who humbles himself in a good way will be exalted in a good way. So, beloved, you tell me, what rescues you and me from being the person who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt? What rescues you from that? It's, it's right there in verse 14. What is it? It's humility. Humility. How can I judge others? How can I treat with contempt other people? When I have received this bountiful, unfailing mercy toward me in my wretched brokenness, I can't. My heart is changed. <laughs> and Jesus says this, 
he who humbles himself will be exalted. What do you think he was thinking about when he said that? Himself. What does Jesus know about humbling followed by exaltation? Everything. He humbled himself by submitting himself to the hands of wretched, wicked people who treated him with contempt. He humbled himself to the point of death on a cross. And what did his father do? He exalted him and gave him the name that is above every name, so that in the name of Jesus every knee would bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. That's exaltation. Jesus knows everything about this. And he longs by a spirit to impart this to your heart. How do you know it's there? Here's a couple markers. When, when the sacrifice of Jesus, his love for you through the cross, his promise to you through his resurrection, when it, when it fills your heart, you never cease to be amazed by that. You never live a life far from the cross. And when you never live a life far from the cross, what does the cross do? It gets your eyes off yourself onto the needs of others. You become a servant. You don't ask, what's in this for me? You say, I am so safe and loved in Jesus. What can I give to other people? So you have compassion on the destitute. Wouldn't that be you but for Jesus rescuing you? And beloved, you, you're, you're, you're increasingly suspicious of your own motives, particularly the self-exalting patterns in your soul. It's different for all of us. Give me another six or seven sermons we could unpack that. You are seriously suspicious and seeking to parse, how do I exalt myself in word, thought, and deed? You need to know that about yourself. Because it's eroding away your enjoyment of the love of God for you, the sinner. And, 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 and then finally, you're keenly aware of your impact on others. How, how do you think the tax collector standing over here felt when he, when he looked at the Pharisee, all this smug, you know, thank you, I'm not like that guy. How do you think he felt? Had a horrible impact on him. When the love of Jesus is filling your heart, you want to know how you impact others because you want that grace made visible. I want to pray for you. Oh, Lord, thank you for my brothers and sisters. Thank you for your love for them, their interest in your word, the seriousness with which they undertake their walk with you. Thank you. Look upon our hearts with your boundless, irrepressible compassion. Fill them anew and afresh with a sense of your mercy, your love, your grace, your understanding, your tenderness, your power, and perfect in us love for others, particularly the destitute. Thank you for my beloved brothers and sisters of Trinity Church. In Jesus' precious name, amen.